to another American Bankruptcy Institute podcast. I'm Sam Giordano, ABI Executive Director. It's obvious that the U.S. economy is in a bad way. Every objective economic measure is headed in the wrong direction. Yet 2011 has actually brought a decline in the number of new bankruptcies. But no one is particularly rejoicing. Bankruptcies closely track consumer spending. As spending goes up, the economy tends to expand, as you'd expect when household spending is nearly 70% of GDP. While this activity can make the economy hum, with it typically comes a rise in the debt that can make families financially vulnerable when life's emergencies arise. And when consumers go on strike, as they have for the last two years, the economy stalls. Evidence of the deleveraging by households worried about their financial future is all around us. This week, TransUnion reported new data showing that consumers are now making more payments on their credit cards than they are in new purchases. Consumers are making a concerted effort to pay down their credit obligations during these uncertain economic times. The sustained decline in consumer spending brings a drop in bankruptcies, along with a no-growth national economy. Of course, the biggest driver in consumer debt is the housing market. And recent news that the nation's historic foreclosure boom is also declining has a similar important asterisk. Foreclosures are down not because the housing market is improving, or even bottomed out, but because the foreclosure pipeline is so clogged with cases that lenders are simply holding off in judicial foreclosure states. To be sure, new bankruptcies are being filed. More than 1.4 million cases are likely by year-end, and the cases continue to raise some of the most interesting and important in bankruptcy law. ABI recently published the third edition of our Consumer Bankruptcy Manual, covering the fundamentals of Chapters 7 and 13. The new work builds on earlier editions describing the changes wrought by the 2005 Amendments, a law not known as a work of great legislative clarity. And so the new book analyzes the raft of appellate and Supreme Court decisions interpreting BAPSIPA. With me today to talk about the new book and current developments in consumer bankruptcy are the book's co-authors, Alan Beckett and Bill McNeil. Alan is a managing partner at the Malvern, Pennsylvania law firm of Beckett & Lee, where she specializes in representing creditors in bankruptcy matters, primarily consumer lenders and debt buyers. Alan has been a co-chair of ABI's Consumer Bankruptcy Committee and an advisor to ABI's Consumer Education Center at abiworld.com. She serves on the ABI Board of Directors. She's a graduate of Penn State and has a law degree from Widener University School of Law. Bill McNeil is an associate at Beckett & Lee. He also represents creditors nationwide in bankruptcy matters, including appellate and trial litigation. Bill has written for the ABI Journal and several other publications on bankruptcy law. He also has a law degree from Widener University School of Law and is also a chartered financial analyst. Welcome, Alan and Bill, to ABI Podcast. Thank you, Sam. Thanks, Sam. Let's um, talk a little bit first about the book. The uh, second edition of the book was uh, published 
back in 2005 to uh, reflect uh, many of the changes in the law that were brought about by BAPSIPA. Uh, what's been happening since then that makes this new revision so timely and relevant? Alan? So when we were first reading and digesting BAPSIPA, some were predicting what the big issues would be. I remember one seminar where a speaker was talking about how there would be a huge onslaught of what he was calling first-day motions in Chapter 13 cases of the type you would normally see in a Chapter 11 that would be requesting that the automatic stay be extended or invoked because the debtor was in a second or third case in one year. Um, since then, there was some case law about what the automatic termination of the stay did or didn't apply to, um, and then it just sort of settled down. Um, I don't see Chapter 13 cases clogging up court, court dockets with emergency, first day, emergency or first-day motions. Um, there was also a major prediction about the noticing requirements added to Section 342. First was the provision about what address was to be used for a creditor in order for notice to be effective. Um, second was the one that was supposed to be really scary, which was that um, any entity, this is how it reads, any entity may file with any bankruptcy court a notice of address to be used by all of the bankruptcy courts or by a particular bankruptcy court as so specified in the notice. Now, not only was that confusing, um, but we were wondering, did Congress really intend for a creditor to file a notice in, say, South Dakota um, that was to be used in every bankruptcy court in the country, and then how is South Dakota going to communicate that to every bankruptcy court in the country? And really, there were some dire predictions about the mass confusion that this was going to create. Um, however, these days, most creditors, like my clients who are large financial institutions, don't rely on um, necessarily actual court notice for identification of new bankruptcies. Um, rather, they get, their, they get data feeds from various companies and use those to update their systems um, with new filings and also things like status changes, discharges, dismissals, conversions, assets, things like that. So what was forecasted to be a major disruption in the system really didn't have a big effect at all. And there were also some other dr drastic predictions about the means test, or I guess what some were calling the mean test. Um, and how it would close the door for many bankruptcy debtors. Then there were other surprises, such as Judge Haynes' opinion in McNabb, which held that the homestead exemption cap of Section 522P, which applied when a debtor purchased a residence within um, a certain period prior to bankruptcy, doesn't apply to states that have opted out of the federal exemption scheme. This reasoning was based on the precise wording of the statute, which said that the debtor's exemption was limited in certain, sex, in certain circumstances, if the debtor elected state exemption. So in these opt-out states, debtors don't really get to elect the state exemptions. They're pretty much forced into it. So according to Judge Haynes, the homestead cap was inapplicable. And that really came as quite a shock uh, to a lot of people um, and was fairly creative decision. And finally, there was Judge Nelm's groundbreaking decision in Hardacre where he concluded that projected disposable income, uh, the new term in BAPSIPA, must be based upon the debtor's anticipated income during the term of the plan and not merely an average of her pre-petition income, which is the formula 
that's used um, in BAPSIPA for current monthly income. And that is, of course, what the Supreme Court ultimately ruled uh, last year in Hamilton versus Lanning. So here we are today, and the, co the economy is very different from what it was in 2005 and has had a tremendous impact on bankruptcies. Um, and, and also, the courts have not really followed what the academics were forecasting to be the hot issues. So the landscape looks a lot different today than what we expected it to look like in 2005. Um, some questions have been answered this past year, so the picture is getting a little clearer. And I think that's what makes this book very timely uh, because it's sort of a, a benchmark in the process of the development of BAPSIPA. As a creditor's attorney, what are some of the big issues consumer lenders are facing today? Well, you know, after BAPSIPA was enacted in 2005, I had the sense that creditors were going to see a backlash because the law was getting pressed as mean-spirited and creditor-friendly and by her purchased by the secured lenders, that sort of thing. Um, some of the opinions seemed to reflect that the debtors were going to be getting the benefit of the doubt, if at all possible, and the McNabb opinion by Judge Haynes is sort of one of those examples. Um, and there were also some opinions regarding what the automatic to what the automatic termination of the stay applied. And specifically, uh, some courts were ruling that based on the precise wording of the statute, the stay only terminated as to the debtor, but it didn't terminate as to property of the property of the estate. So it would render that automatic termination of the stay virtually meaningless. Um, because that's how the little reading of the statute um, was being interpreted. There were, of course, decisions going the other way, but it's sort of I sort of had a sense that everybody was mad at the creditor community back then. Um, today, some creditors are deserving of that bad press. You know, with the discovery of things like mortgage servicer abuses, uh, robo-signing, mm -hmm. uh, and things like that. And as a result... All of us, all the creditors, are facing increased scrutiny in everything we do, and that's making the whole process more time-consuming and costly for creditors. Um, the, other, the other thing that I'm seeing um, is that when I am involved in litigation, for example, a non-dischargeability action or a claim objection, there is a sense of the adversarial nature of those has increased dramatically. Bankruptcy is sort of often considered to be um, the type of practice where the local bar gets along, people resolve things, uh, everybody tries to work things out. But these days, what I'm seeing as a result of, of the economy are debtors that are so desperate um, to make their bankruptcy plans work and to win a non-dischargeability case and possibly not have to have this debt um, be accepted from discharge, that, that the fights are, um, the fights go on and on, and there's much more of an adversarial tone to the litigation that I'm seeing today. And I really think it's a result of, you know, the economy and debtors just can't afford to have these debts accepted from discharge. They need to get these plans confirmed. They have to object to these claims to maybe knock them out. So, that's sort of a, a tonal change that I've noticed over the last several years. Does that increase litigation, increase the cost of, of consumer bankruptcy? 
Well, it increases it for, for everybody. Uh, the debtors' attorneys are trying to do the best they can for their clients. So if there's, a, you know, an opening, they're going to try and go through it. Um, in the, in the dischargeability litigation, in the student loan litigation, in these claim objections, and these cases often involve multiple hearings. They eventually get to an evidentiary hearing. Um, for my clients, the same thing. Mm-hmm. Things that used to be resolved by a phone call are not resolving uh, because if, if somebody's involved in litigation, there's a, there's a really, there's a good basis for it. Um, in their mind, and there's an economic reason why they're sticking with it. And, and it, the protracted litigation is what's costing everyone so much money right now. Mm-hmm. Another uh, change over the last uh, 10 years or so seems to be in the growth of uh, debt buyers, um, uh, the sale of consumer debt to companies that aren't direct lenders, but just uh, try to collect on the debt. What kinds of uh, effects has this practice had on consumer bankruptcy? Our firm represents debt buyers, so I have a lot of experience with this. And, you know, although they they kind of get a bad rap, and I've heard some, some called some nasty names, <laughs> um, debtors need to realize that there's definitely a benefit to having their delinquent accounts purchased by a non-lending institution. Uh, practically speaking, if you think about it, if a debtor wants to try and pay off a debt, who would they rather deal with? Do they want to deal with their lender who is owed 100% of the debt and wants to get as much of that back as possible? Or do they want to pay it off to a debt buyer who maybe bought the debt for 10 cents on the dollar? That debt buyer is much more likely to accept double their investment, say 20 cents on the dollar, than the creditor. So there's definitely a benefit there to dealing with debt buyers. Um, Debt buyers can also... Um, by settling these debts, help the debtors improve their credit ratings by showing the debt is paid. So, um, you know, on the non-bankrupt side, that's, that's a, a benefit that I think is overlooked by, by the people who think that debt buyers are just, um, you know, I guess what they're called, bottom feeders or these other terrible names. It, it, it's a business like any other. Um, the other thing is companies who buy delinquent debt, specifically bankruptcy debt, they, they have expertise in bankruptcy processing, or they refer their bankrupt debt to a company like ours that, that has that expertise. So again, rather than dealing with a bank that has interest uh, more important than dealing with charge-off bankrupt debt, the debt buyer typically files a claim, does it properly, and then remains relatively neutral throughout the rest of the bankruptcy case. Um, they don't muck up the work, so to speak. So that's not to say that no debt buyers litigate any issues, uh, but the majority don't. Uh, they also don't file non-dischargeability complaints against debtors, as some credit card lenders do, when it appears like the debtor maybe ran up the credit card before filing. So you have one of those credit card fraud cases. The debt buyers aren't interested in that, and then they don't pursue those. Um, so... You know, those are some of the some of the things that I think are unrecognized in, in regard to the business of debt buying. Um, from my perspective as a representative of debt buyers, one of the biggest changes I have seen is the tremendous increase in objections to claims since the advent of debt buying. And this goes back to the to the mid nineties. Um, 
the, the claims filed by debt buyers can be ripe for attack because, as everybody knows, um, many debt buyers only get limited access to information about the debts that they purchase when they, when they purchase them. And mm-hmm. when they're pressed, they can't come up with the documentation supporting the account. So it's not that I approve of the idea, but I've seen it used many times uh, to knock out thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars in claims and this can be particularly useful for a debtor who's got some confirmation issues and getting rid of some unsecured debt um, can help them resolve those issues and get their plans confirmed. Um, so that's the increase in, in claim objections uh, is, is the biggest thing from my perspective that I've seen. But the bottom line is that debt buying is here to stay. It's part of the economy. It's good for the banks to offload this debt. Uh, the debt buyers are willing to undertake the debt and collect it, um, and we need to move away from this sort of stigmatized, negative view of debt buyers and just work with them as as any player in would work with any other player in bankruptcy as long as they're following the rules the same way that everybody else is required to follow them. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about uh, some coming uh, rules changes. Rule 3001 of the Federal Rules of Bankruptcy Procedure is due to be change late this year. Uh, tell us a little bit about the change, what's behind it, and what effect it will likely have on participants in the bankruptcy process. Okay, so there's really two sets of changes that are coming, and they were both instigated by different um, events. The first set of changes is to Rule 3001, and it deals with um, consumer claims. It was particularly um, developed because of debt buyers, interestingly enough, mm-hmm. um, and it and it clarifies and adds to the documentation that's required to be attached to a proof of claim. It was brought about by, to some extent, by an opinion that was written um, called Inright Andrews out of North Carolina that was sent to the Rules Committee, and as part of the transmittal of the opinion to the Rules Committee. The author asked that they consider making changes to Rule 3001 to, I guess, quote, force, unquote, debt buyers to comply with the rules for documenting claims. Um, The second set of changes is really directed at mortgage mortgage companies and mortgage servicers. And, of course, that's going to be Rule 3002. And, of course, those were more or less instigated by the... Uh, irregularities in mortgage servicing that were uncovered um, as a result of debtors challenging mortgage claims in bankruptcy. Um, specifically, Judge Judges Magner and Judge Bohm um, down in the Fifth Circuit really spent a lot of time investigating how the claims were prepared, uh, what went into preparation of the claims, what diligence, due diligence went into making sure the claims were accurate, um, whether the claims included charges that were allowable under under the agreement, and they definitely concluded that there were irregularities which resulted in claims that did not reflect the actual status of the account. So the second set of changes to the proofs to to mortgage claims uh, is based on that. As a result, on the unsecured side, um, there are going to be new requirements for proofs of claim. There's going to be a two-step, we think, implementation. The first phase will be implemented this December, 
and it's going to require an itemization of fees and charges to an account in addition to the principal balance of the account. And there's going to be um, sanctions, or there, there's the potential for sanctions uh, for a non-compliant proof of claim. Uh, I believe that the comment to that rule is also going to indicate that a summary of the claim, which is what is most commonly used by unsecured creditors, is allowed, but that it's not a substitute for the actual documentation. So whereas in the past, a one-page summary would typically be a, um, added to a claim, the writing that's going to be required um, is going to be required to be attached, and you can't substitute a summary. And that's a, that's a major change. Um, the, the itemization requirement that's coming is, is vague. I know uh, I've been getting a lot of questions from clients and others about what exactly that means, and so the banks are uh, aware of it. They're confused by it, uh, unsure how to handle it, um, but it's coming whether, whether they like it or not. The sanctions portion is going to call for um, the preclusion of um, a claim amendment if, or, or using the documentation that should have been attached to the claim um, if the claim didn't include it in the first place and could also include um, attorney's fees. So there's a big stick that comes with uh, these new rules. Phase two of this rule, which is still in the pipeline, um, so it's a little less certain to be enacted, will require, in, instead of the writing, and, and that term writing over the years has been described to be many different things, especially in the terms of a, a credit card. Um, the writing, is it the account application? Is it the account agreement? Is it the account statements? Is it the purchase? Receipts? Is it a combination of all of these things? Uh, the newer, the second phase of this rule in, in place of the writing is going to have a list of data elements that you can give, which would include the name of the creditor, uh, the name of the, uh, if, if you were the creditor and you bought it from someone else, who you bought it from, the date of the last transaction, the date of the last payment, a little laundry list of items that will substitute for the writing. And as I said, that part is in the pipeline, so that's, that's a little less certain to be enacted. But if it is, it will be for next December, not this, this coming December. Mm -hmm. So the Rules Committee then dropped the uh, requirement in the claims process that the debt buyer produce the last account statement? Uh, it wasn't only for debt buyers. This was going to apply to everyone. Mm -hmm. um, and the problem with, I, I don't know why ultimately they, de they decided to drop it, but uh, some of the arguments were that, um, you know, providing the last statement is not going to maybe get them where they wanted to be, which is they wanted to know what the account was made up of, um, you know, who owned the account and who originated the account, and for whatever else they wanted it for, I think they realized that, that the last statement may, may not get them there. So they, they changed that, they dropped that, and they put in the, the list of data elements, which is what they I think they were really wanting to get at. Okay, okay. And then uh, the whole host of requirements in the mortgage, in the mortgage side um, are all designed to make sure that debtors know exactly what they owe, when they file, what they're going to be required to pay, 
what's going to be added on to their claim during the pendency of the bankruptcy and throughout the bankruptcy, they're going to need to be notified um, of changes to their mortgage so they don't have that surprise at the end of their bankruptcy case uh, where they get their discharge, they've made all of their payments, and two months later the mortgage company comes calling and tells them they owe $8,000 in fees and penalties. So those rules are designed to uh, make that process um, more apparent. More transparent. Got it. Right. Uh, Bill uh, McNeil, let's talk a little bit about some of these important cases that the Supreme Court in particular uh, has issued in the last uh, couple of years uh, in the consumer area, in particular um, uh, Hamilton uh, v. Lanning and and the ransom case, two cases on related issues. Uh, Can you briefly uh, discuss the holdings there and what are the uh, takeaway lessons from those uh, twin cases? Sure, Sam. Um, As you pointed out, it's true that consumer bankruptcy cases sure got the attention of the high court uh, at a level that hasn't uh, always been borne out historically. So it's it's interesting to watch it, to have watched it. Mm -hmm. Uh, In Hamilton versus Lanning, Ms. Lanning, uh, before I go right to the issue, a little background will help because there's an interesting sidelight about the issue that will become apparent. Ms. Lanning had, um, had uh, a situation where her, her six months immediately pre-petition income, that is the current monthly income, was, uh, was not at all reflective of the income that would accrue to her during the pendency of her case. And so she attempted to propose a plan that, that took into consideration that, that very fact. Um, Trustee Hamilton objected to the confirmation of her plan just because of this income being, uh, uh, because her projected disposable income that she proposed to pay into her plan diverged from the current monthly income averaged of, average of the prior six months, of so the pre-petition six months. There were some disputes, I think, early on in the case over expenses, but those uh, those were all resolved prior to the uh, to the the appellate history building up. So uh, the issue then was narrow, was pretty narrow. Um, that is whether the debtor's projected disposable income during her plan period, uh, whether in calculating that amount, the bankruptcy court may consider evidence suggesting that her her income, her projected disposable income, will, will diverge or be different from her income during the pre-petition period. Now, that was the, the issue as set forth by the, by the parties. The United States um, broadened the ambit of the issue to include consideration of whether a debtor's income or expenses might diverge uh, significantly from the pre-petition period and it, it's that particular issue that the high court decided to take on. So they, they expanded the, uh, the reach of the, of the analysis to, to be greater than that um, set forth by just the two parties. And the court held, it's an interesting opinion, um, in the vein of tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them and tell them what you told them, <laughs> the, court, the court opened its opinion um, almost in the very first sentence, perhaps the third sentence of the opening paragraph, by saying the forward-looking approach is correct. And, uh, pre- and, and the last sentence of the opinion to say, quote, when a bankruptcy court calculates a debtor's projected disposable income, the court may account for changes 
in the debtor's income or expenses that are known or virtually certain at the time of confirmation. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, the emphases that I'm placing in my voice are, of course, not in the opinion itself, mm-hmm. uh, but they're, they're important emphases. And so the, the, the court said, yes, take into consideration things that are known or virtually certain, uh, that is, changes uh, to income or expenses. Um, of course, the, a bankruptcy court's not bound to do it. A court may account for these changes. But... Uh, on, upon reading the opinion closely and, and, and just cogitating on it for a while, uh, there's a couple of key the- themes that really emerge that, that are equally important to the specific holding, and perhaps even more so. The first one is, are the words that, keep, that we keep hearing a lot since then called senseless results. The, court, the high court wanted to avoid senseless results. Well, what, was, what did the court see as senseless? Well, the court saw it to be senseless to deny relief to a debtor by forcing her to propose an unfeasible plan. So if, if this debtor were constrained uh, to her pre-petition income, her pre-petition current monthly income, then she would have been forced to propose an unfeasible plan, and, and of course, then she wouldn't have been able to... Um, step out of bankruptcy, or she wouldn't have been able to take advantage of bankruptcy. So it was important to, um, to them to avoid that, that this didn't make any sense. But the other equally important theme was, uh, on the ex- perhaps um, the expensive side has more bearing on, don't deny creditors payments or monies that a debtor can, can pay. The second key theme in the, in the uh, opinion that came out was the means test that was incorporated into the disposable income test was not intended to eliminate judicial discretion, such as judges were, were um, uh, accustomed to, uh, to exercising under the code prior to the 2005 amendments to the code. And Sam, as you probably recollect, there was quite a, um, uh, quite a few commentators and opinions that, um, that uh, characterized uh, the, the amendments to the code as eliminating judicial discretion. Right. And, and it became almost fashionable to complain about it. Mm-hmm. The Supreme Court made it clear there is no intent uh, in when Congress uh, enacted the, um, the amendments to the code. There was no intent to eliminate the, the, the pre-amendment um, uh, judicial discretion. So uh, judges continue to judge and adjudicate. Um, now then, uh, the ransom versus the FIA card services uh, case was a little more narrow. The issue there uh, was whether a debtor who makes no lease or loan payments, in other words, his automobile is unencumbered by a lease or a loan, um, at the time of his petition, whether he may, in calculating his projected disposable income, expense an amount for vehicle ownership uh, particularly the standardized amount from the IRS tables, uh, even though he's not actually paying any such, uh, any such lease or loan payment. And the court held no and affirmed the Ninth Circuit and found that based upon the text of the bankruptcy code, the context of the means test, and the purpose, Congress's purpose in the amendments to the bankruptcy code, that a debtor who does not make a loan or lease payment uh, may not take the standardized ownership deduction or may not expense the standardized ownership cost 
from the IRS tables. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the statutory text, the court keys on the words applicable, as in the phrase, the debtor's monthly expenses shall be the debtor's applicable monthly expense amounts that are found in the IRS tables. They keyed it on words like, um, uh, they, they looked at the, uh, the, the internal revenue manual, not as an authoritative or a determinative uh, source, but at least as a, as a source to, for which uh, anyone might, be, might look to as insightful or even mm-hmm. persuasive. And uh, they looked at the statutory context, and that is for a Chapter 13 debtor, above all else, or perhaps as a threshold issue, his expenses, the amounts that he expends, must be reasonably necessary. And, of course, the, the code and, and the 2005 amendments went on to say, and the definition of that uh, for a debtor whose, whose income is above the median would be found in this means test that was codified in Chapter 7. And then, lastly, the purpose of the amendments to the code were um, to ensure that the debtor repays to his creditors the maximum that he can afford. And so in, in, that, in, 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 that, uh, uh, co- in those contexts, in the, uh, the, the high court found that it was not proper for a debtor to expense a cost that he's not actually paying uh, prior to his petition. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of some of the fallout of this, of this sort of thing, I. I of these decisions, I, I think that um, it seems that it's, a, it's fairly balanced. On the one hand, going back to Stephanie Lanning, no, the, the court wants to make it clear that it's, it's senseless. It just, does, it just doesn't work to force debtors into a situation where they can't avail themselves of bankruptcy. Uh, nobody wins in that situation, not just the debtor, but no, none of the other parties win either. On the other hand, uh, in terms of balancing, uh, the court wanted to to maximize the recoveries for a, a, a bankrupt's uh, creditors uh, to, to the maximum that he can afford, not, not to dr- draconian levels, but to the maximum that he can afford. So there's definitely a balancing act, and, and I, it seems that all parties to the process uh, should be advantaged by this clarification of the amendments to the code. Right. Well, these cases, as well as uh, the uh, other uh, Supreme Court case, uh, Schwab v. Riley, uh, are indicative of courts are struggling with these very sort of practical problems uh, in the bankruptcy system, uh, trying to interpret BAPSIPA and otherwise. From from your reading of these uh, series of cases and understanding of the problems and unanswered questions that still exist with regard to BAPSIPA, can you predict uh, what is going to percolate up through the appellate system and uh, be perhaps another issue that the Supreme Court will have to try to resolve? Sure, Sam. I I think there's some that are already already starting to come up. Um, And so uh, those are the easy ones to grab a hold of first. Some of these would, re, would center around uh, what should be included in projected disposable income, given Lanning's emphasis on, on uh, realism and taking into account changes that are going to occur. Uh, for example, um, Social Security income, which, uh, the protection of which is enshrined in the definition of current monthly income as being out of bounds at mm-hmm. that level, some courts are finding that, though, when you, when you finish the calculations and now you're going through the process of, quote, projecting, as in projected disposable income, 
Now then, uh, all these sources of income which were protected in the, in the definitions of, CM, of current monthly income, now then they become eligible for uh, inclusion in the, into uh, projected disposable income. Um, social, social security income is probably in a minority of, of decisions being found to be uh, a part of projected disposable income because it does receive that favored treatment in the definition of current monthly income. But an, um, another expense that, that's a little more, uh, being treated a little more evenly uh, across um, the litigation experience are contributions to a tax-qualified retirement plan, which most of us know as a 401k or a 403b plan. And in that case, um, well, for starters, the, 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 the repayments of a loan that a, that a bankrupt debtor uh, has taken pre-petition, those, those repayments are protected, and, and so uh, he may continue to do those. But, but uh, contributions to a retirement plan are getting disparate treatment around, around the country. And basically, three positions have sort of uh, gelled in, in that regard. One approach has, has been to limit a debtor's contributions to his 401k plan to be the same level as it was pre-petition. So he may include that in his expense regime when he's calculating his projected disposable income. Uh, on the other hand, another approach is to say that um, a, a debtor may contribute to his retirement, his tax-qualified retirement plan at any level, even if it's higher than the rate at which he was contributing prior to his petition. And some of the ras uh, rationale for that uh, depends upon uh, a perception that every bit as, as important to maximizing the repayment that a debtor can afford is the special place that retirement uh, protection and retirement planning and retirement finances um, uh, are allegedly, uh, allegedly holds in, the, in Congress. Mm -hmm. uh, a third approach, then, is perhaps the other extreme, and that is, um, based upon some of the language of the various code sections that are implicated, there is no reason to protect or to preserve for a debtor the right to contribute to his retirement plan post-petition. He, um, he must devote those monies to his creditors instead. And then after he's out of bankruptcy, he can certainly, uh, and he's certainly encouraged to save for his retirement. Resume, right, right. Well, we'll look forward to uh, seeing those uh, issues uh, uh, percolate up through the uh, appellate system. There's one more that, uh, that I'm going to mention, Sam, quickly. Um, it seems to me Justice Kagan left the door wide open for a challenge to a debtor who maybe does have a car payment, but the payment is not um, as high as the standard allows. And the question then would be, um, does the debtor get just their car payment as an expense or the full, uh, the full allowance? And uh, it was pretty clear to me that that's an open issue that they, that they weren't considering at, in ransom, uh, but that they seemed to think was a, a, potential, a potential issue. Bill, any others that you um, I think I think that, uh, speaking of Justice Kagan's opinion, she also raised some issues about motions to modify under Section 1329 of the Code. And um, across the country in various circuits, there are different uh, requirements to, to show a motion to modify, but they basically break down into two camps. In one camp is a requirement that a, a change to the, the debtor's finances that prompt him to modify his plan 
that those changes be both unanticipated and substantial in financial terms, that is. On the other hand, some circuits have held that those requirements are not necessary, uh, that it need not be a, an unanticipated change to his finances or that it need not be substantial. And the closing paragraphs of Ransom discuss two scenarios that, uh, that, that in which this might arise. The first scenario is where a debtor, uh, not like Rant, Mr. Ransom, in, in this case, uh, where, who didn't pay, but a debtor whose car is paid off during the pendency of his plan. And what happens uh, to those monies that are freed up at that point? Mm-hmm. And the opinion makes it clear that the creditor is certainly free to, to uh, move to modify the debtor's plan. But if it's a car payment with with a, a, a date certain of when the last payment is going to be due, it's difficult to argue that that was an unanticipated uh, circumstance. It may be substantial, but it's probably not anticipated. Mm-hmm. All you have to do is look at the date and the last coupon in the payment book. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, a debtor who, who, like Mr. Ransom, had a car that was paid off, and perhaps even a rather old vehicle, and so he's concerned about his or her ability to, um, to replace it when it breaks down and, and becomes um, economically unviable to, to repair. W- what happens then? Well, uh, once again, the debtor can move to modify his plan. Now, in that situation, it's arguable that the circumstances is unanticipated. I mean, everybody knows old cars break down, but you never know quite when they're going to break down. And, uh, but certainly, it's a substantial expense. Well, Reading the words of the opinion, it, it, there, it's, it's possible to, to extract from it a, a slightly different test for when the, the, the debtor's income goes up, such as when his car payment is paid off, as opposed to when he, his income might go down because he's shouldering a new expense because of replacing an old car. But, um, so there are some questions there as far as motions to modify. And of course, more important in the motions to modify arena is the issue of whether the means test is invoked once again in the process of examining the modification. Some courts say that, um, that the means test is not invoked. Other courts say that because the motion to modify basically says you must comply with the provisions of Chapter 13, uh, all of the provisions in, cha- in Section 1325, well then the means test is imported into that analysis once again. So that's another issue I think probably more important than, than the, the rest that, that uh, is going to float up because um, that, that's, a, that's a strong and a, and a rather marked difference of opinion. Mm-hmm. Clearly. And then there are other little ones that come out of, not little, but there are other ones that come out of landing that are pretty obvious. In other words, landing said changes to the income and their expenses that are virtually certain. Well, what does virtually mean? And, and, uh, and, and is it really a change that's required? What if a person knows ahead of time that there's going to be, um, you know, a, um, uh, you know, how, how do you use that? Knows that there's going to be a reduction in income or an increase in expenses. So um, every time the high court uses an adverb, then the rest of us have to figure out over the ensuing years how to define it. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you both, uh, Alan and Bill. We're uh, out of time for today. I want to Thank you both for joining me today and uh, more importantly, uh, perhaps for your great work on the new book. Uh, Congratulations and thanks very much for your help. Thank you very much. It's our pleasure. Uh, I can mention that uh, you can order the book at ABI's uh, online bookstore at 
abiworld.org. And that's also the place to hear some 100 podcasts with guests from the bankruptcy world. Uh, So until next time for ABI Podcasts, this is Sam Giordano saying good day. Good day.